0: This is Steve Kemp with the People Not Titles podcast, and I am just pleased to have my good friend and colleague, Felix Gonzalez. Uh, Felix is a real estate attorney uh, and um, just a active member in his community. Uh, he's a passionate guy, and I'm excited about uh, hearing Felix's kind of career journey uh, and talking about what's important uh, to you, Felix. So thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate yes. it.
0: thanks. Um, so, Felix, let's talk. You weren't born a, an attorney, uh, but you are one now. And let's talk a little bit about that uh, that journey. Um, you know, you're, you're going into school. What, what age do you, did you think to yourself, okay, I'm gonna get my law degree, I wanna be an attorney?
1: Well, you know, I probably was a rambunctious kid, just like a lot of other people. One of the lawyer jokes that's always out there is that uh, I argued a lot, and so therefore I should've gone to law school. That's okay. kind of a yeah. common trope amongst lawyers. Uh, Did you
0: argue a lot as a kid, by the way?
1: Well, not in my household. <laughs> my dad was very strict and he was a disciplinarian for okay, sure, so didn't. there was not a lot of argumentation. But there was a lot of understanding that there's two sides to every story. Okay. And so there was a lot of that as I was growing up. And as I went to uh, you know undergraduate, I was at U of I uh, for undergrad, I actually went in as a college of business major. But about halfway through, I decided that perhaps I wanted to get a little bit more of what I would have viewed as a traditional liberal arts education and actually became a philosophy major mm. and so philosophy then you know as I sat around the kitchen table at the house and I had a conversation with my dad and I told him I said well dad I think I'm going to change majors I'm going to move from business I'm going to move into philosophy and he looked at me he goes well, what the heck are you going to do with that? Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's when I really decided that I wanted to continue my education and go to law school. Hmm. So what, what had you, did, so did you toggle to philosophy? I sure did, yeah. That's and where what, I got my BA.
0: What, what was it? What Was there anything that you identified, like, this isn't my path, this is? What was that, that what light bulb went on?
1: So in high school, I had a... Uh, teacher that was a a PhD and he had a PhD in philosophy and he was really an instrumental role. I still talk to him to this day Mm. and we interact and he's a wonderful man. And, um, you know, he and I had talked and I always appreciated that he seemed to know a lot about a a lot of stuff. Mm. You know, he was uh, very well versed in art and history and culture and all of these other things. Uh, I think what we would still call worldly, mm-hmm. had a worldly mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking down at books and figures and numbers in business school, uh, it, it was boring for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. you know. And so I decided I wanted to be educated if I was going to spend all of this money going to college. And uh, and I've always been a thinker, I suppose. You know, philosopher, the word really means lover of wisdom. Mm. So I felt that if I educated myself in the thoughts of a bunch of old dead guys, that I might uh, myself grow in my own education.
0: Yeah, and uh, and it seems like, oh, you know, you're not gonna study business, you're gonna sort of, philo- what are you gonna do with this? Like, well, we're all people, you know, and the more you study people and wisdom uh, uh, that has helped people in the ages uh, be successful and live fruitful lives, the more uh, the more uh, productive you can be in any field, right? I mean, that's, uh, so that's, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, and, and one of the keys in philosophy, so, you know, you start off, of course, with the ancient Greeks, you know, their study of you know culture in terms of like how the polis worked and how democracy, and then you're talking about Hume and Locke and individual rights and all of these things. They're literally a direct feed into the entire study of law. Yes, and so okay, so then
0: when did that click on and say, okay, I, I'm going to go now into into law? Was it was it when you uh, when you moved to philosophy? Right. Wow. Right.
1: Yeah. It was it was essentially a simultaneous decision. I said, if I'm gonna be here for another two years, I want to enjoy what I'm studying. Yep. And then uh, knowing that you know baristas don't make the kind of money that my ambitions had decided to undertake, mm-hmm. I said, I'll make a simultaneous decision to end up going to law school. And I ended up going to U of I College of Law as well as U of I for my undergrad.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And so you graduated, you're out of law school now. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing, Felix, that most people would look at a person like you been a lawyer for how many years now?
1: 23, coming on 24. 23,
0: 24 years and go, man, this, you know, this, you know, you were either born a lawyer or you were so clear in your career path or there was just, you know, I wish I had that clarity. And then as you unpack people's journeys, you realize they really weren't so clear. There were these moments where they were like, gosh, I'm taking a risk and I got to go tell my dad and I got to make these decisions. and Now I got to make something out of it. You know, all these kind of uh, crossroads that you hit.
1: Well, you know, even within the practice of law, I would say that I've had several career changes. Absolutely. You know, so when I first graduated, I went and I did uh, what they call insurance defense work. So I worked for insurance carriers who had insureds who had been sued as a result of accidents. So some were trucking companies. uh, CHA was one of our clients. Some of the uh, foster care agencies throughout the state were. We had accidents that dealt with, you know, people getting crushed in uh, elevators to car accidents uh, pretty much anything all over the map and you're and defend now you're defending
0: these companies that are being sued
1: so the insureds yes which had insurance policies, yep. right so they would be companies or sometimes they would be individuals I see well. yeah. okay so and I did that uh, I had worked at State Farm in an internship uh, you know, one year prior to going to law school. And I thought that that was going to be where I was at. Just a, you know, corporate, uh, you know, defense insurance lawyer. And I did that for a few years at a uh, my first shop coming out of law school. Really enjoyed it. Got a wonderful experience. So
0: you're um, arguing in courtrooms?
1: I probably within about three or four weeks after getting sworn in, I'm already in court handling motions. You know, most of it was already prepared by other lawyers in the firm, but getting that opportunity to cut my teeth, Mm -hmm. to get in there, to get into the mix, to get into knowing the Chicago legal community of plaintiff's attorneys and the judges and everything else.
0: Okay, and what were your big takeaway from that period of time? Like what skill do you still have that you learned right there,
1: uh, you know, in action? So I had a good mentor at the firm and uh, his name is Jim Bartlett and Jim really had a good way of relating to people. So he was not an argumentative attorney. He was the sort of attorney who uh, essentially let me know that, hey, you're going to see these other attorneys down the road. You're going to see these other judges down the road. Set your reputation now that you're a young lawyer of being honest and truthful. And more importantly, don't be outrageous as you're trying to negotiate mm, cases. Grandstanding. No grandstanding, be reasonable up front because it always comes to uh, fruition in the back. And you know, ironically, years after I had even left that firm, lawyers that I worked with while I was there, we remember, oh, I remember we had that case. And I know you're a straight shooter. And ultimately, I think in your legal career, especially uh, when you have a good reputation that tends to follow you. Mm-hmm. And you aren't a pushover. Right. Yeah. Not a, you know, not so you, yeah.
0: So you fought for your client, but at the same time, there's a way to do it respectfully and to right. win the day as opposed to, you know, you, everyone loses and I win.
1: You make it about the facts. You don't make it about the personalities. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it came down to.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay. So what happened from there? Then you made a transition.
1: So, you know, if anybody knows anything about some of the insurance defense firms, there's a lot of hours and there's not a lot of love. So I got recruited to actually practice uh, down the road from our studio location here today. Mm-hmm. And I practiced in Oakbrook, and I switched to the dark side. I started doing plaintiff's work. Okay. So I did, I did that for about four and a half years, uh, right over here by the uh, Oak Brook mall. And I worked for a sole practitioner and, uh, even took all of that experience that I'd gotten in the, you know, year and a half that I worked at the first firm and was able to translate that into, you know, developing a portfolio of business for myself, Mm -hmm. representing clients, doing the same type of work. You know, the first couple of months, judges were like, well, wait a minute, how come you're on the plaintiff's side? (laughs) And I said, well, judge, I've changed firms. And they're like, oh, okay, switch teams, huh? (laughs) And so that was actually kind of funny for a Mm -hmm. little while.
0: And what you realize then probably is that there is two sides to every story. Absolutely. Right, and and now I need to argue this side. And so you're on the other side of the table and now you have empathy and understanding of these people that are uh, that are the defense
1: folks, right. And then sometimes when I would go up against attorneys that we used to share co-defendants, code now they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah." But you know that same uh, that same spirit of cooperation, but representation was always there. And I found that actually benefited my clients. We did very well those years that I was in plaintiffs' work. Hmm.
0: Excellent. Okay, so after play, so you got both sides of that on the insurance work. Then what?
1: Well, so I did that, and then uh, you know the market was changing. So this was probably the early two thousands, and uh, I'm also bilingual. I speak Spanish, and you know the first time that a real estate file came through my office, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I've never done it. So you know. In those days, you went to the library, you went to the law library downtown and there's uh, resources like the Mm ICL to walk you through how you do a real estate closings, things that you should know. And I spent a few days up there just going through the book and making my notes. And then I started taking on real estate clients and uh, being one of the few bilingual attorneys here in DuPage, I started to go to closings and tried to do a good job, and agents started just handing me their cards, and soon they were handing me their files. Mm.
0: And this was while you were still working and
1: doing insurance work? Well, I had left the insurance work, I was doing the plaintiff's work, and then I started getting the transactional real estate work. And then the, um, the real estate work actually ended up taking up about 50% of my practice within about an 18 month period of time. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was, uh, started growing my book using those services.
0: Okay, and then at what point did you go off on your own?
1: So uh, I was with that practitioner for about four and a half years. And then a, a colleague of mine that I'd known for a number of years uh, had a corporate firm downtown and uh, he asked me to join him and I ended up working with him Uh, at a firm for uh, two years. I was a named partner there as well and then uh, he made some career changes because he actually went to go work for the daily administration Mm -hmm. and he did that for a period of time and as he went off to the uh, daily administration I decided to start up my own shop and I did that in the southwest side of Chicago where I was living at the time and uh, we named it the Archer Law Group because I'm on Archer Avenue.
0: And when was that?
1: Well, that was about eighteen years ago now, Steve. Okay, that was about eighteen years ago now.
0: Yeah, and what uh, you know, what, what I I think, what, uh, what a real estate agent who is considering an attorney should know is that you're an entrepreneur you know what i mean that you do know what it's like to open up the door and to walk in and go i got to make something happen turn on the lights
1: pay the bills (laughs) make the calls the emails all the work yeah
0: and was that was that a gulp for you at that time or did you kind of just go into it like oh well you know whatever you you don't even know what you know what you're getting into or were you was that like a big decision for you am i going to join another firm or am i going to go start my own business was that a passion or was that kind of like i guess i got to do it this way
1: well, I think that uh, it was a fortuity of circumstance. You know, I had a uh, group of friends who actually had a real estate office and they had a number of agents and they were in a growth phase for their business. And I was invited to come in and essentially rent a spot. And so I figured that's- Is this pre-Big Short? This was pre-Big Short. Oh, okay. This is like 2004-ish, Yep. you know? And so, you know, I mean, deals coming in left and right, yep. keeping very busy. I mean, at one point I had two other attorneys, almost three, and I, you know, basically two and a half working with me. I had two or three uh, secretaries, mm-hmm. and then of course the market made its flip as it frequently does, maybe even mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, starting up your own office is really. Uh, almost as complicated as trying to name your own child. Yep. You know, uh, you realize, hey, I have to create a name. I have to create a brand.
0: Mm-hmm. What do I
1: want this to look like? What do I want the customer service experience to look like? Mm-hmm. And you have to visualize all of that and put it into plan.
0: And all the while, I have to generate business.
1: And in the meantime, you're still grinding and still yeah. representing the clients and getting up early. And, you know, I was uh, I was married at the time and, you know, raising the kids and, mm-hmm. Doing all of that other fun stuff as well. She just continuing to grow it all.
0: So when the uh, when the time came, uh, Felix, for for the the market to turn at that time, were you ready for it? Did you see it? Were you surprised? Uh, I, I know that no one, I, I don't know that anyone thought besides a few that it was going to be so crushing at the time to Very the dramatic. real estate in the industry. Uh, it, like wh- what was your, you know, what were those days like where now all of a sudden you went kind of from, Feast to famine, right?
1: Well, uh, I, I have a very clear recollection that in December uh, that I had just an amazing month. There was like thirty closings, just boom, oh, boom, five, boom, December boom, boom, of '05 boom. was that? I believe it was like December yeah, of '05, yeah. right? And you're just nailing out closings, yep. and you know you're living you're living that great life, and yep. you're paying off your student loans, yep. and you know all of the rest of the fun stuff that comes. Dreaming with, about you know, what's going to be. I'm going to be an investor. Right. I'm going to this. I'm going to yeah. that. You know, I'll be at this age. I'll retire by forty. You yeah. know, all of that kind yeah. of conversation, and then uh, in early January, I remember very very clearly being at a closing table. And, you know, having explained the documents, and in those days, everybody went to the closing still. And then you could hear the closer, she's in the background on the phone, and she's like, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) What what are you talking about? (laughs) You can't do that. Can I talk to a supervisor?
0: He got fired yesterday. What?
1: (laughs) What do you mean? Yeah. Hello? Hello? (laughs) And then she puts down the phone, she goes, that was the bank they've ceased operations they're not going to fund the loan they've gone out of business and so everybody's just sitting there like this is unheard of this is what how is that even possible
0: yeah and if you closed with it i was in the mortgage business if you closed at five o'clock the day before your loan got funded right you know right so it was really one day to the next right you
1: come in at nine o'clock in the morning and you know you're waiting for a funding authorization and, you know, her concern was that she had instructions that had been delivered yep. the night before and was trying to call the person who she was directed to call. Nobody was answering, oh. so she tried to find a back way in. And next thing you know, the bank has closed permanently. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, that was interesting yeah and then then the slide happened and then then a series of cancellations of contracts came in after that because the lenders were going out of business Mm -hmm. and then you know people were freaking out about you know everything else and Mm -hmm. uh you know so one you know it's like from one minute you're doing great to the next minute you know you see the tumbleweeds coming into the office versus real estate contracts
0: yeah and one of the things that i was marked with at that time uh for me was you know you had this you had this thought that it's gonna turn around soon. You're, like, you're just, op, you know, kind of naive optimism and this and that.
1: Normalcy bias. Yeah,
0: normalcy bias. It's gotta come back. We, this can't happen. All this, but guess what? It did. It was for much longer than most people uh, realized, and um, and it was much a much deeper cut than most people realized. Absolutely. So, how did you? How'd you survive that time, Felix, both, you know, just uh, strategically and just emotionally, psychologically?
1: Well, I would say that there's two parts of it. Um, You know, there's the biblical adage of seven years of feasting Mm -hmm. and then seven years of famine. Yeah. Right, and so I was. We, we, I was kind of brought up in that way. My grandmother, right. Yeah, my grandmother was a product of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. You know, don't waste anything. Don't be frivolous. Yes. You know, and as a young lawyer, I was a little frivolous. I bought the fancy car. I bought yep. the fancy suits. Yep. I bought the fancy place. I actually used to live right down the block over here in the high rise. You know, so I, I was enjoying the fruits of my labors and successes. Um, but I did also have savings because I was always cheap. I guess prudent yep. as well yep. with finance. But you know, when you go a month or two and then three months into having very few transactions coming through the door and you're struggling to fund the ones that have already come through, you realize in very, very short order that maybe real estate is not where your next meal is gonna come from. Mm-hmm. And but, you had
0: and you had people on payroll at the time. I had people so on payroll. So I had payroll, to make tough decisions, right? And I and, have uh, wife and kids, yeah. and
1: I have mortgage, and yeah. all that rest of that fun stuff, yeah. right?
0: So those are things you have to think about in letting people go because you don't have work anymore, and right. you know that that's all the emotional stresses. Yet at the same token trying to get win business out there and be Mr. Positive and hey, I got you and I'm here for you.
1: and Well, you know, but the fun part is, is that then you call the realtors that were generally the ones who would refer you transactions and then you find out that they've already left the business because <laughs> they realized that they weren't getting any new per prospects. Nobody was listing their house and nobody mm-hmm. was purchasing and there was no finance authority where you could go to i mean yeah. the banks were really really tight on credit yep so then you know everybody went back to i guess a, a real job like mm-hmm. we used to say yeah and so so then those referral sources disappear so frankly you, you had know, a pivot yeah, you have, a, you have to do a pivot and a cartwheel and a jumping jack on top of it. <laughs> and so what you end up doing is, and, it, and if, since that time I've maintained this, where about 60% of the business is the transactional real estate, but then the other 40 is still going back to litigation. Mm-hmm. And so, but now with my practice, what I do is I do a lot of real estate litigation. And then in those days I would do foreclosure defense. I would do the modifications for the short, short sales. sales. And that now that that's sort of in the dustbin, maybe to come back, who knows? But I've always done now uh, building court matters and other real estate related litigation. And so, Felix, I see
0: this, uh, you know, kind of tapestry of experience that is now really able to benefit people that are working with you, you know, from the litigation side of it, from working plaintiff, from working on the defense side, from uh, pivoting and being an entrepreneur that says, hey, I have to make some decisions here, Uh, you know, all of these things now uh, manifest itself in a uh, great transactions for you and your clients.
1: Well, you have to know where the market's going mm-hmm. in order to eat and yep. then to have to have a breadth of opportunity that you can bring to each of the transactions always benefits the client because then you could give the client some knowledge, perhaps maybe other transactional attorneys don't knew, know or deal with. You know, as an example, just a super simple one, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend decide to go and buy a house together. Well, your boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm-hmm. All right, let's create an agreement that says exactly how we're going to wind this down in case boo and bay don't end up working out. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people are very open to that conversation. And then other times they're not so open to that conversation. Um, but inevitably, I would say about 70% of the time I get a call a few years down the road that says, hey, this didn't work out. Uh, we should have followed your advice on the agreement, but now we're fighting and now we have to deal with the situation.
0: And it's much harder, right, to work on it from that angle when everyone, when you have hostile parties as opposed to everyone going into it. That's with, exactly
1: the case. Yeah. And then, you know, then you get the judge to decide versus having, you know, autonomy to make the decision based upon your preconceived plan and implementation versus having to litigate and fight. And then, you know, what, like, could you believe he did this? And you know, so it gets really dramatic.
0: So Felix, what is so in your mind, or uh, if, you know, through the agent's experience, what is the Felix Gonzalez or Archer Law brand? What does that bring? What does an agent get? How do you, how are you able to separate yourself? I mean, we see it in your story, but how does that manifest tangibly in a in a transaction today?
1: So you know, clients call the office. We want to make sure that they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that they understand that you're bringing twenty three years of experience to the table. And that, you know, it, it, every day when you think you've seen it all, you know, sometimes you get surprised. But for the most part, real estate is pretty consistent and it's stable in terms of, number one, the personalities that you deal with. So I'm fortunate that I get to deal with a lot of the same colleagues as attorneys mm-hmm. and a lot of the same brokers and agents. You walk in agents. today and you were like, hey, right, morning, Joe. You, you know, know, I recognize, yeah. you know, one of my colleagues over here, great guy. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, also, so so a lot of it is maintaining relationships. Yep that's really what it comes down to.
0: And that was from the beginning of your first days in court to today.
1: Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. One that's of great. my, one of my, you know, we don't get joy sometimes in the practice of law because yep. it's a thankless profession. Uh, Cause you know, people pay a fee and they're like, well, you did what I paid you to do. So, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: bye. Yeah. You know, but one of the nice things I really like is that there's some families that I helped, you know, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad Mm -hmm. and now their kids are buying Mm -hmm. and they've all come to me Mm. so it's really a lot of fun to become the family lawyer to become the lawyer that they say hey i got a legal question i'm going to send felix a message and you know send a quick response back and they say thank you a few weeks later they'll come in for some other legal advice you know they need a referral for a service that i don't provide then i'm able to send it to a colleague that i trust that's going to take care of them like i would Mm -hmm. so that's really i think one of the one of the best parts and you know we have a system, we have a process, and we check in on our folks to make sure that they're protected. Mm-hmm. That's really what they get.
0: You know, uh, Felix, I, I think about just how you said that you, you know, respecting everyone in the courtroom, going back to Jim Bartlett, mentor, um, and you know, a lot of people they they think that the success principles are going to start kicking in once they're successful. You know, oh, then I'll start respecting people, but for right now, it's eat dog or whatever it is. And what you realize is, no, those foundational principles help you raise up, and those are the things that still separate you today, but you gotta implement them way before success is kind of on the horizon, you know, type of thing.
1: Well, I think it's really a question of authenticity as well, right? So what you do in one circumstance is typically how you act and behave and manifest in others. Yes. And so I've always been an agreeable fellow to the point that I needed to be agreeable and then aggressive where I needed to be aggressive. Yeah. And, you know, you could be, you know, I think uh, General Mathis once said, be kind, courteous, and professional, but have a plan to kill everyone you meet. <laughs> and I, I always thought yeah. that that was like, yeah, okay. that's exactly, I think, the point, yeah. you know? And uh, obviously that was in a different context uh, other than the courtroom, but, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in the metaphysical sense that you say, if, you can, if we can't work this out, we can't agree, I'm gonna use the full weight of my legal knowledge to represent my client and get my objective. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's always the position I've taken. That's the other side of it
0: that you have to be ready to go to if you need to.
1: Right. And, you know, reputation in this business or any other business is a very fickle thing. Mm-hmm. And reputation is a funny thing because it's the one thing that we create for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's also the one thing we could destroy for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's always how you treat other people that uh, determines that.
0: Great. So, what's the, what's the future, uh, Felix? For your firm, is it just continue to do excellent work in the spaces that you're in, or is there another uh, vista that you're looking looking at?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. It's a fortuity of timing. In the next few months, I'm going to actually do a rebrand of the office, um, as I you know I'm, I'm turning fifty next year, mm. and so I'm looking you know about a ten year horizon to start uh, yep. walking my way out the door of the practice. Uh, to start training the next generation of young lawyers who's going to come through Mm -hmm. and eventually you know now that lawyers can sell our practices i'm looking to grow my office in a way where you know i can have associates and bigger staff and you know all of the rest of that to come along with so we're going to be doing a rebrand that's very consistent with what we've already got but we're going to have expanded product offerings we're going to have relations with other attorneys who do stuff that we don't do And I want to continue to grow the practice and really turn it into marketing uh, arm where people understand that there's a system and a process for making sure that their family objectives are resolved, but then also to make sure that we have a good client experience and that we continue to grow in a market which, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the economy, but I know for me and my uh, staff and my family, we want to continue to grow and that means seeking out new opportunities.
0: Yeah, you know, I um, that's fantastic. And so you're you're thinking of the future, you're planning, you're plotting. I'm
1: planning ten years out. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, I've had a lot of time in the last year or so to sit down and to envision what this would look like. And mm-hmm. so I've met with my, you know, consultants and stuff to do that. So we'll be doing some interesting rebrandings and uh, that's that's gonna be the new baby for this year. So Felix,
0: um, and I think you're going to do great, uh, just as you always have done. So you're you're a guy that is more than business. You're uh, active in your community. So what's important to you? I know you're a, a big uh, Second Amendment person, right? Very much So yeah, and uh, as am I, uh, and um, and I think uh, and you, so how does that how do, how, how are you uh, active in that community? And some of you know you have the guns and tacos. Right. Uh, so what's, what's, what's the heart behind it?
1: So, uh, it, well, going back to the financial crisis that we discussed was never into guns growing up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my dad had, you know, the typical revolver that was in the sock drawer and the yep. dresser, never had gun culture in my house or anything of that nature, but it was very interesting during the crash. I mean, I knew a few people who, um, Didn't do well emotionally during that time. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of people in a great deal of panic And it just occurred to me that this might be something that I might want to learn about Mm -hmm. and uh, Then I acquired my first firearm and then another and then it became a uh, Interesting passion. So I don't just have all kinds of stuff. I have a lot of historical guns as Mm -hmm. well and so one of the nerd things that I like to do with the firearms that I have is there's forums where you could actually find, you know, where they were manufactured, then what units they were deployed with, then you could find out what battles those uh, units fought in, and then so you so you nerd out with the history on the firearms. But all so this, where these
0: guns actually were, where they were where, fired, where what they, they were used for, maybe
1: even by who? Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of a little nerd rabbit hole yeah. that I've enjoyed going down that's with great. those. And then you know frankly speaking um you know i'm not athletic in any real sense so but i am competitive Mm -hmm. and so with firearms it's interesting because it's always you versus you Mm -hmm. so if you don't practice it shows up on the target right Mm -hmm. it shows up on the paper when your group is like this versus it's a smaller grouping and so it's a constant thing you're always honing you're always practicing and so then what ended up happening is is I said, well, if I, if I'm going to enjoy this, I want to learn as much as I can. I started taking instructor certifications mm-hmm. and so now I've got like over nine different instructor certifications and I actually uh, teach um, Arizona, Utah, the Indiana mm-hmm. license to carry as well as the Illinois conceal and carry classes. And uh, right now I'm actually teaching twice a month, the uh, Utah and Arizona classes. Mm-hmm.
0: So is that online?
1: No, it's actually in person. I teach in uh, Hammond, Indiana at the Cabela store. Wow. So I work with the company that they have a nationwide contract with uh, with uh, Cabela's and Bass Pro mm-hmm. and I've taught all over the place. During the pandemic they had me going out to Connecticut hmm. um, and you know for me it's it's really uh, obviously it's a self-protection issue. Sure. I, I, I enjoy the fact that I can protect my family. Yeah. But as a citizen it's very important to me that we are able to exercise our rights. So just Whether passionate. it be property and all these things yeah. that you talked about before. I'm as passionate about the Second Amendment as I am the First Amendment to yeah. go to church and to say what I like and yeah. to, to do what I want and to mm-hmm. hang out with whoever I want. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the second one is right after the first one, <laughs> which is freedom to assemble. So there's yeah. that. Um, but for me, it's just something that I enjoy to do. And you mentioned my event, Guns and Tacos, Facebook page. And uh, every year we've hosted that event and we go out to the Buffalo Range out in Ottawa and in the last few years we've been able to donate money to different charities including uh for veterans and for uh, police officers
0: yeah and so what we're talking about is we're talking about a thoughtful guy who's involved in the law who's never you know been you know on the bad side of the, of the law and never. who's yet still a proponent of this and so i imagine that you've had a lot of interesting conversations having to you know listen to people and hear their points of view of uh, maybe they're reasonable or whatever it is the right. the other side of the story how have those conversations gone for you Felix and you're an now at this point you're an advocate that says hey I want to speak up for this because it's not just a bunch of people living in a shack in the woods you know, waiting for the apocalypse with a bunch of firearms.
1: You know, it's interesting because I think that there's a perception of who is a potential gun owner Mm -hmm. versus what I see as an instructor as I'm teaching my students. So my class is held in Hammond, Indiana. My typical student is a black female. So for me, that is my passion. Wow. Because those are women who have children. Yep. They live alone. Maybe their community is not as... um, uh, safe as they Mm -hmm. would like. Mm -hmm. And they recognize that, you know, they're their own first responder. Mm -hmm. So that to me is very important to bring that to them Mm -hmm. in order to assist them. I had a gentleman the other day and his uh, permit was expiring literally the next day. And, um, I was able to get him into the, I was able to accommodate him the next day, do a renewal. This is a guy who worked 30 years for the railroad, sweet guy took care of his grandmother Mm -hmm. just like 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 my kind of people like a pillar of the community Mm -hmm. but he realized like unknowingly that his permit was going to expire so i was able to make sure that he didn't have to take the 16-hour class all over again so when i can help people like that i enjoy it Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who come to me and say well i hate guns or we shouldn't have guns and, you know, uh, that's their position, frankly. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not my place to change their and mind. it doesn't come
0: up during the real estate transaction. I mean, it doesn't come up, you know, yeah. generally speaking. You want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. But otherwise... Right,
1: yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't bring it up to folks because, you know, I never not. know where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, there's people who've had bad instances and whatever. But uh, honestly, what I tell people, I said, well, you know what? If it's not for you, I respect that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yes. for me. Yeah. And I'm going to exercise my rights. And then, uh, you know, in the last year, the Bruin decision from the Supreme Court really made it clear that some of these 20,000 gun laws that we have regulating firearms and the people who use them that maybe we need to focus more on enforcement Mm -hmm. rather than all of the new laws that they're trying to come out with, which at this point are all gonna be unconstitutional. Mm -hmm.
0: So, uh, well, that's great, Felix. I'm glad we were able to uh, talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about just, uh, you know, kind of this idea of backing the blue, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, uh, interesting, uh, you know, there's this uh, real estate uh, soccer uh, community, okay, that I'm a part of, and we played Against the uh, Chicago PD, okay, and uh, and they whooped us. Okay, it was it was thirteen to nine. <laughs> we used we were foot chases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And uh, I'm telling you what, they were organized. They looked great. We had a lot of fun doing it. And um, at, at, after the game, they gave us a nice plaque uh, and this kind of thing. And the the leader of the of the that uh, team said hey we want we just want to let you know that you know we sweat we have families that are all here we bleed and we enjoy soccer and we enjoy this is why we're doing it is to let you know that we're actually human beings and you know that day maybe a few days before that game one of the members of the team was shot and killed in the city this is the young man that they just found the the person yesterday maybe that, right you, you know I'm well, talking he was about? up
1: he was up for arraignment he had been caught right afterwards yeah. okay yeah lasso yeah okay yeah officer exactly lasso.
0: officer lasso and so he was he was on that soccer team and wasn't able didn't show up that saturday you know that we played and so these are real guys yeah with real families that you know pay the ultimate price and so talk a little bit about your your uh you know just your perception of all that
1: You know I think that uh, we've really come to a very interesting point in our society where we have decided to take away our own individual accountability Mm. and we've come to a place in society where we've said and you know uh, in one of my many travels I was actually appointed by Governor Quinn to sit on the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority Board. That's a long title. What did we do? Well we basically directed state and federal money Towards all kinds of programs including incarceration, reducing recidivism, community investment for like you know teens so that instead of being on the streets in the summer they have a place to go. We did all of these different types of things to help to make sure that prison wasn't the first option for a number of wayward youths and you know sometimes you know middle-aged adults and everybody else in between. What you find is that criminal behavior tends to manifest itself essentially from the age of about 15 to about 28 in the majority of the male population. And if you look at what's going on with those individuals, frequently they're involved in households that are single parent households, typically raised by the mother, typically the father is absent. They've struggled throughout their uh, academic career with schooling, Mm -hmm. consistency of being in school, and then they're essentially ending up on the streets, being raised by the streets, and being raised. It's a in, tough place, and it's the worst place. Yeah, it's the worst place. You have to
0: defend yourself. You have to be hair trigger, ready to ready to fight at the drop of a hat.
1: Well, what ends up happening is is you're raised essentially in a trauma culture, mm. because then not only are you being attacked by let's say rivals, but you're also on the defense. Then you're seeing good friends, you know, pass away from this lifestyle. So we looked at all of these different things, Steve, and. What I understand is a person who never has had to deal with any of that. My parents, we were raised very middle class mm-hmm. and everything else. But I can look at my fellow brothers and sisters and say, you know what, don't be mad at the police officer who arrests you as a consequence of your behavior. There's no relationship between poverty and criminality. You could be a poor person, but still maintain respect for yourself. For other people's properties and other people's lives Mm -hmm. and you know what we really need to do as a society is to focus on how do we strengthen the family Mm. how do we make sure that these uh, young men who are engaged in these high-risk behaviors because they don't have adult role models typically uh, I you know I have two boys and I raised my kids in the Scout program until very recently when they decided not to finish but I mean, that program is structured and mm-hmm. the men and the fathers were there and the community was there supporting them. We would go, you know, to have weekly or monthly masses with the community mm-hmm. and the amount of support that we got was great. And what, that's what I think young men need because mm-hmm. young men are most at risk for criminal behavior. And you know, I would encourage all of the men out there if you're not already involved with some program that deals with mentorship of young people, society needs you. Take Mm -hmm. your own kids, Mm -hmm. go to YMCA, go Mm -hmm. to a scout meeting, Mm -hmm. you know, go to a Boys and Girls Foundation, whatever, whatever your flavor is, make sure that you're giving that because any man can be dad but only a real man can be someone who can act like a father Mm. and I think young men you can literally make the difference in someone's lives and then that takes away from that hopelessness as I understand the facts that was an 18 year old man who was dating a 37 year old woman apparently there was some kind of argument that they had about him being able to provide for her so I think that first of all when I look at an 18-year-old dating a 37-year-old, they see an imbalance of relationship there. Mm-hmm. And then he acted out in a negative way with rage, got a domestic call, and then his answer, instead of saying, okay, I'd crossed the line, was to have a handgun, which under Illinois law, under federal law, he's not supposed to have until he's 21. Mm-hmm. And he took the life of this officer. So more
0: laws to stop him from shooting something. He already broke the law.
1: Well, murder is illegal. Right. right. Having a handgun at 18 yeah. when you're supposed to be 21 is illegal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, fleeing arrest is illegal. Yeah. Getting involved with the domestic is illegal. So, I mean, do we, do we fill up our fingers with more laws that, you know, they're called a criminal for one reason. Is because they engage in crime. Mm. And whether or not a piece of paper on the books means anything mm-hmm. has to do with how they were raised and ha- have respect for institutions and have respect for their fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I read that, uh, you know, Lasso's wife uh, posted essentially a, a eulogy, and uh, it was beautiful, mm. but it was heartbreaking at the same time. Mm. And I think that we need to get back to saying to people, There are norms of behavior in a civilized society. Mm -hmm. We will help you if you're having a hard time and you're struggling. Mm -hmm. But if you cross the line, you're going to have to pay the consequences. Mm -hmm. And they will be swift and they will be onerous. Mm -hmm. And people have to understand that, you know, if you continue to hurt people, you're just going to need a time out from society Mm -hmm. and you're going to be incarcerated until you figure it out
0: yeah and then the and then these the rest of those you know i think about the rest of those men that were part of that soccer team right they're all thinking now you know they have to really keep their wits about them to not lump all of society into what lasso did right or whatever it is they have to still get out tomorrow and pull people over and speak to people and all this and so there's a way of respecting them as as people as people in the community that are that are supposed to be you know, people be act out and all that, but
1: they're, they're on the good side. They're, they're on the, on the, on the team. That's trying to help. I I wouldn't want to live in a town that didn't have a police officer. I wouldn't want to live in a town that didn't have fire department. Yeah. You know, I mean, I could take care of myself pretty good, Mm -hmm. but I'm just one person and Mm -hmm. I can't respond and that's not my role. Mm -hmm. So we have folks who are our guardians and our protectors. I mean, if you go back, there's there's all these cultural analogies. I mean, even God had angels to protect, mm-hmm. St. Michael the Archangel, mm-hmm. one of the patron saints of police officers, defend us in battle against the wickedness and the snares of the devil. Mm. You know, So we've always understood that there is a, we have military, mm. so we always understand as a society that we have a rank of protectors. But if we vilify them in the way that we have done in the last few years, if we don't allow them to do their necessary function of taking those elements um, off of the street, which are causing harm, we're not helping society. We're Mm. hurting society. As a side note, I mentioned that a lot of my students in my Hammond store are African-American women. They're the most conservative. Mm -hmm. They're the most critical of this recent push to defund the police and to have no cash bail and Mm -hmm. to be sought. They're, they're, and I'm very conservative generally. Mm -hmm. They're past me Mm -hmm. because they know that, you know, it's their nephew or their neighbor's kid or whatever and they know he's gotten out three or four times, and they know he doesn't care, and he's just gonna keep on doing it. Mm. He's gonna keep on doing it until either the street catches up with him or he gets a life sentence. Mm. And so I find that people- Yeah,
0: that's real real street stuff. That's that's real real people. You're you're
1: getting in the,
0: you know, it's not the narrative, not the news, not this, not that, not not some uh, talking head. This is real life stuff that These you're talking
1: about. These are real people yeah. who see what's happening to their communities mm-hmm. and they do not like it. Mm-hmm. And they're arming up because they know that the police have to, you know, to, to, to use the word, they've been handcuffed mm. because if they go and arrest somebody, they spend three, four hours doing paperwork, the person post bond, the next day they're back out on the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, the one joke about criminal justice is, is that those police... Who just randomly pick up a kid or whatever they've seen them on that street corner dealing whatever mm-hmm. they've seen them they're these police run a beat right they're familiar they with the, these people. they know the players they know the players in the game mm-hmm. and so it, instead of playing cat and mouse mm-hmm. you know what we really need to do is just to get back to common sense and making sure that people understand that if you Veretta uh, used to say don't do the crime if you can't do the time yes
0: yes you know, uh, and Felix, when you were leading these uh, scout troops, I'm sure you've seen the men or the young boys that were becoming men, and that's an investment, right? So people say, right. what can I do, right? Uh, those are some of the things that we can do is right. to is to participate in those things, whether it be coaching the baseball team or whatever, you, you, a chance where you're impacting people where they can look at it and go, oh, look at this guy. That's different. You know, that's a different life kids need to see that they need to have those role models. Right. So, bravo to you. And, and
1: I've seen, but you know, it's not just me. I mean, I've yeah, seen lots many of men, yeah. right. You know, you go and you sit there and then, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of fathers who don't take parenting seriously and that's unfortunate and that mm-hmm. should change. But yep. if they do, they will, if they don't, they won't. And somebody else can step in because especially young men in my view, they need somebody to sit there and say, life is going to be a challenge but be tougher than the challenge. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have a lot of temptation, but don't be tempted. Mm -hmm. Do what's right, not what's expedient, Mm. and have a future vision of what you wanna become. And if young men could continue to hear that message from someone who's doing it and who's encouraging them to do it, this criminal justice situation will really fall by the wayside, Mm -hmm. you know, but we have to become involved and we have to invest in our neighbors and our kids.
0: Mm. Great. Great messages, Felix. Well, Felix, uh, thank you so much. So the Facebook page is Guns, Guns and, and Tacos. Guns it's, and got tacos. A, it's
1: got an icon of a taco with a sombrero and two pistolas.
0: Okay. And so in in the rebranding of your firm, is, mm-hmm. it, is it still going to be called Archer Law? Nope. Okay. Do you want to unveil it or is it- Name that... to
1: come. Okay. Name to come. Okay, great. That's exciting. <laughs> I already we'll have it, but that. name to come. Okay. But it'll be very familiar, Steve.
0: Okay. Fantastic. That's, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yep. Um, well, Felix, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, just Pleasure having that, you on. Yeah, the, the, it's I uh, uh, on. yeah. Uh, it's it's great to see the work you're doing in the community. It's inspiring to hear your career journey, and um, and it's great to uh, understand what uh, they get when they have Felix uh, Gonzalez on the on the case or uh, in the transaction. So thanks.
1: Zealous advocate for all my clients. Thank you. Steve.